0: Welcome to the Straight Talk on Fleet podcast with Aaron Gilchrist. Each week, Aaron will be breaking down fleet management, trying to cut through the noise and get down to the real issues safety and operations leaders are struggling with every day. The goal will be to get to the bottom of how leaders can break down these silos of information, accelerate change management, how to use real-time accurate data to drive massive efficiencies across fleet-focused business processes, and to elevate people's careers with emerging best practices. Now it's time for the Straight Talk on Fleet. Okay. Welcome back fleet community. We are back for another episode of the straight talk on fleet. I am Aaron Gilchrist. I am VP of evangelism at IntelliShift. So on my podcast, what I try to do is just be a reliable source for you who's objective, and share information about the fleet ecosystem based on my experience that comes from running an enterprise size fleet for many, many years. I know fleet management's hard, it's probably harder than it needs to be, so I try to break it down fleet manager style. So with that said, we're going to do that in fine fashion today with our guest. I'd love to introduce to you our guest, Bob Martinez. Welcome, Bob. Thank, Thank you so much for being with us. Bob is um, not only our guest today, but my friend, and colleague and he has spent a lot of time in our industry. So let me just kind of do a quick intro and then we'll let Bob speak for himself. So Bob has had quite the career so far, Um, spending the past 36 plus years, I think 36 and a half years at the NYPD. He started out as an auto mechanic many years ago and has held several positions since, supervisor, director of fleet services division, Executive Director of Support Services, and for the past eight years as Deputy Commissioner of the Support Services Bureau. So they do a lot of things. Uh, The Bureau provides logistical and technical support to all the commands um, within the NYPD and services the public through the operations of the Fleet Services Division, Property Clerk Division, Central Records, and Printing. So. Bob oversees approximately 800 members of the service and an annual operating budget of over 153 million. So, big job, great career so far. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't do you justice, Bob. So, just spend some time telling us, in your own words, a little bit more about your background and what your role is um, today at the NYPD. And then we will spend some time digging into our topic for today's podcast, which I am personally terming as the art of adapting, according to Bob Martinez. So, okay, with that, Bob, tell us about you.
1: All right, so we'll, we'll start at the beginning of my career here at the NYPD. I mean, even prior to that, I was, I was involved with mechanical stuff. I actually started, <clears throat> started my career <clears throat> as young as 12 years old, working in a motorcycle shop. And uh, my first 10 years, I guess, or more, I worked on motorcycles. Uh, and that's how I ended up getting into the NYPD. Uh, we were selling uh, to the NYPD to fix their Yamaha scooters at the time, and uh, I started having babies and needed a job with benefits. So I asked are they hiring at the NYPD, and I uh, gave them my short resume at the time, and they hired me pretty much right away. When I started with the NYPD uh, was that on day one I went to the motorcycle shop, and normally back then you had to work fifteen twenty motorcycle shop, but because I came from the motorcycle world, they uh, put me right in the bike shop uh, back in uh, June of 86, that was. And then I was a mechanic, um, and originally I was hired as provisional, and to get a permanent city job, you have to take a test, uh, a civil service test, so it took a couple of years before the test came out, and it got marked, and I got hired off a permit list, so that brings me all the way out to March of 88. And then, uh, and then roughly uh, seven years after that, or 10 years as a mechanic, through another civil service test, I was able to become a, a supervisor of mechanics. Um, and then I was a supervisor of mechanics for another 10 years, roughly. And then I started getting discretionary uh, promotions. And while I was a mechanic, I went back to school and got my associate's degree in uh, mechanical engineering. And then I went back and got a, a bachelor's degree in electromechanical mechanical engineering. Uh, which actually pays dividends now as we uh, transition into electric vehicles because it gives me a lot of insight into uh, what's happening and what the needs are and in the infrastructure. But we'll get more into that later on. So I had to send the uh, discretionary promotions, and eventually, uh, I believe it was in 2006, uh, became the director of the fleet, and then I became the director of the biggest police fleet in the United States—not uh, necessarily in the world, but in the United States, probably the third or fourth biggest in, in the world. And then after doing that for three and a half, four years, um, I was asked to come down uh, downtown here, as we call it, the headquarters or the Glass Palace. And just prior to that, uh, while I was director, I went back to school and got my master's degree at NYU in executive management. Just because I thought I was a good leader, I thought I knew how to do things, but I wanted to uh, formalize that and get some formal education in the management and leadership area. And NYU has a really great executive uh, program, a management program in their uh, master's program. And so uh, I came down and at that point I rolled into the executive director spot. First time that a mechanic or anybody from fleet services actually came and took over a spot uh, in the bureau. I actually displaced a two-star chief, so which is even more rare that a civilian would take a, a two-star chief job. And then the NYPD and military world was all about the stars. So uh, now I'm a deputy commissioner. So as an executive director, I'll be a two-star spot. Now as a deputy commissioner, I'm a three-star spot. Uh, so then in September of 2014, we had a new commissioner, Commissioner Bratton, and he wanted to know why I was the only executive NYPD, being the largest possibility I have of, as we mentioned already, 800 people and a uh, $150 million budget, as well as 39 locations. Uh, and then he made me um, a deputy commissioner. Uh, and that, that's pretty much my uh, my role there between both uh, uh, education and my career. And then uh, after I was the executive director, I uh, had the opportunity to go up to Harvard uh, for a couple of weeks And I spent three weeks full-time, so uh, it's almost equal to a couple semesters of regular college part-time, where it was, you know, literally 35 hours a week of of, uh, learning and training at the uh, Kennedy School at at Harvard University, which was a real great experience to to do that. And that was a lot of the same type of education and leadership that I learned uh, or encountered uh, at NYU. Um, But Pretty really good stuff. Really uh, great education uh, on on the leadership role. You know, great author to read on leadership. You know, uh, we learned similar to like uh, seven habits highly uh, effective pe- uh, people, uh, Stephen Covey, and as well as uh, Daniel Goldman, who uh, six different styles of leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a lot of real good leadership material out there, but what was real interesting was I was able to to, um, experience the NYU and then also Harvard. And and it was amazing how the same authors and a lot of the same material uh, is used on the leadership roles.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I've read so many of those books and in my professional career, spent a lot of time in leadership development type of um, training and it's the best kind. You know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The people part is the most important part. And it sounds like, you know, I, I loved hearing about the fact that you've been able to work and raise a family and continue to move up while continuing to further your education. So it's just, it's impressive. I love it.
1: Yeah. Well, you left out and point my wife played a, a major role <laughs> because without her, uh, but there was a point where I was going for my master's and she was going for her master's at the same time. But at that point, the kids were a little older. so.
0: Yeah, that's a, a challenge to say the least. So good for you both. That's just fantastic. So, well, thanks for sharing a little bit about you and how you kind of got to where you are today. Um, but, you know, guys, every time I love, to talk to my audience about adjusting and adapting and change management. But every time um, I talk to Bob, I hear a great story or something that reminds me of how good Bob is at this art of adapting. So before we dig into some of the situations that have um, kind of shaped the way that you've learned to adjust and adapt, I think it would be helpful for the audience to understand your scope. So tell us a little bit about how many assets and what's the workforce and a little infrastructure um, around what you're managing Um, And like the city population and stuff, so people can get their head around, you know, kind of what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis.
1: Okay. So the city's made up of five boroughs. So uh, with said, last time they did a count, uh, which is only, I think, a year ago, I think we're just somewhere in the ballpark of eight and a half million people. So in addition to eight and a half million people, we probably have three million, if not more, come to the city every day. Between uh, you know uh, the different higher education that we have, we have many colleges within the city. Um, we have you know Columbia University here, NYU, and then the workforce. Quite a few people. We actually have, I think, uh, on a high day, we have quite five to six million people that use the subway system. So it's it's a really a lot of people coming in and out. Now what we have here in the NYPD, uh, we're um, supposed to be equal to the seventh largest military force. We're semi military in the world, so we, we roughly 55 or 54,000 people or members of service, 17,000 of that is civilians, and another 36,000, 37,000, depending on on the, the day and, or the year, because it varies uh, uniform. But that's the type of numbers we deal with. Now, getting on the fleet side, we're roughly uh, 10,000 assets uh, within our fleet, uh, just under uh, or seven and a half. Thousand fleet, because we have a lot of vehicles that are off-road vehicles and trailers and stuff like that. We have horse trailers and, and uh, motorcycles, The regular fleet is probably uh, something between seven and 8,000 once again, it fluctuates. And then in addition to the vehicles that we have here at NYPD, we also fix the vehicles for Department of Transportation and uh, Department of Environmental Protection. So we had some consultants come in a few years back wanting to privatize our operation and just the opposite happened. They were so impressed with the operation and statistics we have, and we do a thing called FleetStat, that they uh, instead of privatizing, they give us more work. So we ended up with another 1,600 vehicles to fix. So uh, of course they cool. did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we have a lot, a lot on our hands. So we have uh, on the fleet side, uh, in, in totality, I have thirty-nine facilities under me, but thirteen of those facilities are uh, fleet facilities. And we have uh, about 400 members of service assigned to the operation. Uh, I think we're at 30 or 40 uniform, and the rest are civilian workforce.
0: Wow. Okay. I'm, I I know the audience is probably trying to wrap their head around that, but so am I. It's um, it's quite a workload. You know, and despite all that, I think what's interesting about the city is just the density, right? At any given time, how many people are moving about? How many Vehicles are moving about and then God forbid, you know, something happened to interrupt the flow, the flow (laughs) of everything that's happening in your city. So I think it'd be fun now as we move into this topic of sort of like adapting and adjusting to hear a little bit about some of the things that have happened that we're all familiar with, but what that meant for you and your operation and the people of the city, um, how you some things you encountered and how you adapted. So let's start with um, one that's near and dear to everyone's heart and talk a little bit about 9-11 and kind of, you know, what that meant for your operation and some things that you had to do differently um, probably going forward for probably changed the whole trajectory of how you um, look at safety and security in your city. But I'll let you take it from here. 9-11,
1: definitely an event that uh, I guess none of us will ever forget, but especially me. So at the time, I was the supervisor of a shop on the West Side Highway, which is literally a couple of miles north of Ground Zero. But that, you know, being close and and actually witnessing the second plane go in live is something I can never get out of my head. To this day, when I see a plane flying in the sky, for some reason, I'm like, I'm waiting for it to blow up or crash. It's just, it's just something that... Um, that they got etched in my, in my head there. So um, during that time, you know, being with the NYPD, our biggest concern was what else is happening? So I remember a lot of things very vividly from that day. My, my son, or at the time, my kids went to, I had four kids. All four kids were in four different schools throughout the city. And my oldest actually went to high school in Manhattan, and my other kids were in different schools throughout Queens. And my first concern was where they are and what they're doing and get them home. But meanwhile, there was no, you know, we didn't have cell phones then and and it was very hard to get in touch with people. And uh, so I had to put kind of my family on the side and figure out what we're going to do. And we didn't know we're going to do. So the biggest concern to NYPD is where does it end? You know, is is this a, a one off? Uh, was this an accident? And obviously, uh, to myself anyway. When I saw the second plane go in, I, I kind of knew it wasn't an accident. And I even mentioned to a fellow I was next to, I said, "Is this terrorist?" He goes, "What do you mean terrorist?" I said, "Well, it just seems like a terrorist act to me." And, and uh, I was right on point, not even realizing how on point I was. So with that said, and and watching the second plane go in live, and and watching the buildings come down. And listening to the police radio of you know a, a, a member of service actually screaming on the radio as the building was collapsing around her, uh, Mar- Martha Smith, the name was. It, it was quite disturbing. But then we had to figure out how do we how do we keep the city safe? Are there going to be more attacks? Um, are there going to be secondary explosions out there? Because uh, a lot of terrorists plan and invent and do secondary devices and, and explosions to kill the first responders as they respond, but that's unfortunate. That's the world we live in when it comes to terrorism. So uh, we'll move on to the, the second day, but uh, I remember going down to the pile that night, and uh, I saw a friend of mine that I knew for many years, Frank Fellini, and he was a chief in the fire department. And at this point, over 300 members of the fire department, I think it was 342, perished that day you know, with the initial collapse, as well as thousands of other people, as well as thousands of people jumping out the windows of buildings and what have you, just because they couldn't get away from the flames. So uh, I remember walking down to the pile and, and this big crowd of everything from um, National Guard to uh, firemen, firemen from other counties, police officers, all around my friend Frank Fellini, and we made eye contact and uh, And he was in charge, and you could just tell like he had no clue on how to handle it, tell people and then do it but but we moved on and and that was actually the last time I saw Frank Fellini or, or um, heard from him you know from from that point on, but he he did not perish. he had a retirement, but he was one of the only fire chiefs living so uh, let's let's circle back into where the fleet thinks. so it turned out a ballpark of one hundred and eighty vehicles had some type of damage or sucked in dust. And um, so this dust, when those buildings came down, it was very similar to like a nuclear reaction. It created a vacuum and door panels and lenses, taillight lenses, um, got packed with dust. So you take the lens off or the door panel off and it wouldn't be broken, but it would be completely packed with this dust as if you use spray foam insulation. Uh, how wow. it got in there, how it got so compact, I have no idea, um, but this is just what we found. So we cleaned roughly 180 vehicles. We had to disassemble these vehicles. We had to wash them down, vacuum them, and get these vehicles back in service. Now that We did that over uh, probably a uh, 16 to 18 month period, but initially we wanted to get the emergency service trucks back in service because our large rescue trucks and small rescue trucks got damaged. So some of the trucks had the uh, cabs damaged, some had the boxes damaged, so we would tow them back. And, try to make one good truck out of two trucks, Um, but General Motors and Ford Motor Company and and Chrysler at the time, they would deliver us chassis, um, just deliver them and we would put boxes on the back to try to get ESU back and then we had um, roughly 40 motorcycles uh, that um, Harley drove out from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They actually physically rode these bikes and delivered them to us for free and just gave us these motorcycles uh, as a donation uh, BMW offers us a bunch of motorcycles, too, but we don't ride BMW motorcycles here, and my highway guys are very picky, so we returned them, actually, but that's the whole story of the day. Um, but, that, but that was uh, the, uh, the 9-11 thing. The unfortunate thing is, you know, those vehicles that got cleaned, about five of my mechanics are no longer with us, because they came down with uh, terminal cancer years later from cleaning the vehicles and then breathing in this dust that was claimed to be safe that wasn't safe, so... So I do have a lot of experience dealing with hazmat stuff now. So now when we do have a steam pipe explosion or something like that, uh, I, I quickly get the vehicles and I, I actually don't even try to fix them. We just, we just condemn the vehicles and crush them or send them, send them as a hazmat to a landfill. I have very strict rules on, on what we do and how we do it because, um, as we were told back then from the federal government, that the dust was safe, nothing to worry about. obviously it was not safe since we have at least five members that work for me that are no longer with us so um, that's my 9-11 story in in a short spiel
0: well it's just um thanks for sharing that that's just so hard i'm so sorry for the losses that you experienced and your experience during that time that traumatic and it's just um amazing i'm sure there are so many other things and so many lessons learned but it's it's crazy living in a city where not only that happened but a lot of other things happen you know major events and diplomats and you know people coming in to new york city from all over the world and what the police department has to do to support those efforts i'm sure is so significant but another you know thing that we talked about in our conversation recently was you know storms snowstorms and things like that but Talk a little bit about Superstorm Sandy. That was big, and it it had a big effect on your operation. Um, tell our audience a little bit about what happened and what you had to do to adapt. Right.
1: So, ten year anniversary this year. So it's ten years ago, yep. and there's some things that happened back then um, that we're still dealing with ten years later. Still, uh, no no resolution to it. Um, so, yeah. So once again, I don't just do fleet. I also do property clerk. Um, so my property clerk division, got hit almost worse than my fleet. Uh, on the property side, I had two warehouses as well as my cold storage records, uh, warehouse go underwater, literally five or six feet of water. And then, uh, we had a number of vehicles that went underwater as well during Superstorm Sandy. And then we also had a blackout and we also could not get fuel. So there was no fuel being delivered because all of the ports got knocked out. So we had actually, uh, another one of my duties running the fleet is we we have 60 fueling locations as well as the uh, harbor patrol for the boats we do their fueling as well so all that got wiped out so we had supplied fuel for um, all our vehicles as well as uh, eventually our members of service uh, to get them to come to work because the whole entire metro area had no no fuel deliveries and we had a blackout for about four and a half five days no electricity so uh, But just going back to the property clerk, so my auto pound, completely underwater, uh, 4,000 vehicles submerged. Uh, We had, uh, and I'm still dealing with this, I had uh, approximately 9,000 barrels of biological evidence, which nowadays they call it DNA evidence, but it's it's biological evidence go underwater, uh, as well as my warehouse, uh, another warehouse of evidence, and, and, uh, and then my cold storage records. So, we actually sent 27 tractor trail truck loads of records up to Canada to have the records uh, dried, gamma rayed, digitalized, repackaged, and sent back millions of dollars, you know, 27 tractor trail truck loads of, of old records to do that. Uh, and then I have, like I say, 9,000 barrels of this evidence that I still have that got contaminated. It was the biggest contamination of police property in the history of the world, and we're still dealing with it. And it was kind of dropped in my lap. And I really was never an evidence specialist or expert, but I kind of know a lot about evidence now after living through all this Bet stuff. you do. So uh, getting back to the fleet world. So the fleet world, you know, we, we had to, uh, you know, once again, get vehicles delivered, get them back. We got to keep everything rolling. And then the big decision was, uh, which came up between the police commissioner and mayor, and put me in an odd spot, was that our members of service couldn't get fuel either. So... Uh, If you remember correctly, that was the same time when uh, the president election was up for re-election. And the federal government should say they were bringing some fuel in, but they decided to give whatever fuel they were getting to give it to the general public because they were trying to boost votes. So we had no fuel. And, in fact, even the National Guard had no fuel, uh, except for what I was able to get. So we were able to drive upstate New York. We have tanker trucks and we were bringing fuel in. And then at some point uh, we will be in approach because our members of service didn't have fuel. So we wanted to give fuels to our members of service and we decided to do it with a program together. Uh, we used the uh, people's ID cards on the last number. If It was even, they could get gas on an even day. If it was an odd number. They can get gas on an odd day at you know, security teams, at these filling locations to give our members of service. And we would only give them 10 gallons a day. And very shortly after word got out that we were doing this, I got a text message directly from the mayor saying we're not allowed to give fuel to our members of service. So um, I then contacted the police commissioner, Commissioner Kelly Thomas, said, hey boss, what do you want me to do? I got this text message and he said to me, Bob, disregard, I'm in charge and we'll continue to give fuel. So we uh, proceeded to give fuel and in totality, I think we gave away 64,000 gallons of fuel and we were able to keep you know our members of service come in to and from work uh, we also have 20 buses usually on average in our fleet and we also started our own bus service we had a whole bus route to bring people to and from precincts and pick them up at the city line and then do whatever we got to do but once again flexibility uh just adjusting uh another big thing was light towers you know we had to light everything up we had no electricity so uh we we uh We've got our hands on every light tower. Now, the other problem with light towers is that you have to fuel them. And originally, we had the light towers only running at night, uh, but then we saw that the community liked to plug in their iPhones and iPads and whatever uh, portable devices they got uh, into our light towers, and they were actually putting extension cords into the light towers to charge up their their personal devices. Uh, So then I suggested the police commissioner that we should put these – uh, surge protector uh, on on all the uh, light towers that you could plug in multiple devices so we put two surge protectors that had like 10 outlets each so 20 outlets and so but now we had to run the light towers 24/7 not just at night and literally they became like the focal point of each little community there would be 20 30 people standing around every light tower charging up their devices uh, but it was great because we were able to communicate with those people at that point. Uh, the other thing I'm also in charge of is printing. And that's when we realized that printing becomes very valuable when you don't have electricity, because one of the only ways to communicate with the general public is to print stuff and hand it out in housing projects or apartment buildings and stuff and tell them where food and shelter might be available or resources might be available because there was no communication, no, no way to, uh, you know, people didn't have the TVs on and et cetera.
0: Wow. wow. That's just so much to take in. Um, a lot of creative minds Working together, um, the odd and even ID to the odd and even day, I mean, that's just um, it's creative. It's adapting, adjusting. So when I think about what's going on in our environment right now with supply chain issues and high fuel prices, um, it'll be great for our audience to hear that um, they're going to be okay. Um, we'll get through this because, you know, if we can, if you can get through um, Superstorm Sandy and you're still, de- still dealing with things I think we can, you know, try to make it through some of these times that we're dealing with right now. You know, what other kind of events happen on a regular basis in your city that that you guys have to prep and prepare for on a consistent basis?
1: Well, we'll start off with today. Uh, Today is the tree lighting. So uh, the whole world, well, at least a a decent number of people around the world will be watching at uh, 9.55 tonight when the mayor flips the switch to turn on the tree. Yeah. So, yeah. that's, we will literally have a – and today's bad weather. It's raining here in the city and stuff. But we'll literally have a million people uh, in a four-block area trying to all see the tree get lit at the same time. So that's a big security issue, big crowd control. But we've been doing this for years. Uh, we have the Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know, last week on Thursday, you know, one of the biggest watch parades in the world. Uh, Times Square, you know, I, I was uh, – one, one particular Times Square uh, evening, I, I was in the, I had my, my own little pen area where my family and friends were allowed to get a, a very good view of the dropping of the ball. And it had to show me right next to Brian Seacrest, and my phone went crazy. Everybody was texting me and emailing me, You're on TV, you're on TV. So, from and literally from around the world, because when I went to Harvard, that was 60 people from around the world that attend that, you know, people from England and, and Australia and Hawaii and so uh, it gave me connections to people and networks from around the world, as well as my fleet folks from around the world and, and the country. So uh, yeah, so that, that uh, so tree lightings, parades, uh, United Nations. You know, this year we had probably one of the largest United Nations things going on. We had you know the heads of states from all around the world come here every September to meet, and we had to do all that security and clear them, and a lot of security issues and a lot of countries that we as the united states are not always friendliest with but we have to deal with them and they have their security issues we have our security issues so um very very interesting on, on how we have to uh, deal with all that uh, as well as you know what the president's doing you know we got to coordinate getting him in getting him safe and then we got to do that with their people and they don't like sharing a lot of information so we're, we're kind of on uh, on call to just adjust to whatever you know depending on the weather conditions uh, he'll come in by helicopter if not he'll he'll uh land at the airport and we'll have to close all the roadways so uh, we have to be able to uh, adapt to whatever's going on with the president and, and the vips coming in
0: yeah sounds like a lot of fun bob but i don't want your job um ever okay i mean except for like the celebrity part because i feel like you're you're like a fleet celebrity and then now i know that you were like hobnobbing with seacrest <laughs>
1: yeah well i do i do have i do have pictures with uh i actually uh, it'll be a year in january where i met i met uh, president biden and then a few years earlier i met uh, president trump so uh, we we um i have pictures with both of them
0: so. oh nice very yeah. cool yeah i want to come in your office and look at all your stuff one day i'm sure i can do that i'll, I'll visit you Next time we get to go to Capitol Hill together and lobby for some something fleet related, right? Uh, um, yeah. So you talked a little bit about getting that call, like that text message from the mayor, but you report to the police commissioner. I mean, how often does that reporting structure sort of cause angst for you? Um, um, well,
1: yeah, we're actually, a lot more with this administration. So um, <laughs> and some we just can't get into until after I retire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's we have a little different dynamic this year. We have a um, this administration, this mayor May Adams has a, a deputy mayor of public uh, a public safety, and he oversees the police um, police department, corrections department, uh, the sheriff's department, uh, basically all law enforcement uh, parts of that. And uh, it just happened to be he was also my roommate at Harvard. So. When, I spent three weeks with the with the, the new deputy mayor, so he retired from the police department years back. But now he's got uh, you know came back, uh, got recycled as we say. So that kind of puts me in, in a unique position sometimes when he's asking me for stuff. But uh, because I know him so well, I'm not shy. Is that if he asks me for something, uh, I can tell him that I really need you to ask the police commissioner for that, you know. And and uh, I've done that a few times so the, every administration is a little different but this with this administration i always like to make sure and, and my my policy is i always let everybody know who my boss is so and even if the mayor asked me to do something um i would probably do it but my second call would be right to the commissioner saying i'm being told to do this by the mayor uh and then if, if she said because now we, we actually have our first um female police commissioner here, uh on Stool, and, and she's she's amazing. She she's really incredible and uh, very happy to have her and and, and just thankful that that uh, who she is and talk about a great leader. She's phenomenal. So um, yeah so right now that's that's my the way I work is that I um I work for the police commissioner and I just make sure that they're in the loop one way or another.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like even more fun. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, we talked a little bit about sort of all the things changing in the industry too, and this whole EV revolution has come to be. Now, you have some experience with your education, but you know what is? How, how might that shape out, or maybe what are some of the things you're doing now, and what are what are some of the futuristic things that you're thinking about when you think about electrification and the fleet for the NYPD? Yeah. So we're we're
1: in the midst of doing that now. We I mean we have. Uh... 31 Chevy Bolts, fully electric Chevy Bolts. We have them for about two years now. Uh, we use them for uh, some traffic. Agents use those. Uh, we have them for supervisors of school crossing guards, and we have them in school safety, uh, and uh, they've been working out real well, uh, fully electric uh, but they're, used, they're not 24-7, you know, one or two tours a day at best, and then they're not used on the weekends primarily. So they have a lot of, uh, as referred to nowadays as dwell time or downtime to charge. Uh, since then, or this, this past year, I just received 148 Mustang Maki's. Um, the retail car, it's not a police car. Uh, I test drove one about a year ago, and uh, in the uh, mayor's office, along with the Department of General Services, Said so they were willing to pay for uh, for us to get a few of these. So we decided on getting the Mach-E uh, Mustang uh, GT model because I wanted the steel roof with the bigger battery, which is no longer going to be available with a steel roof next year. Um, so we're just starting to put those in service now. So out of the 148, uh, 40 of them are unmarked and 108 are marked. And uh, so we're giving them out. So right now, I'm trying to give them to executives. Uh, I made a deal with them. If you give me an SUV, I'll give you a brand new Mustang. And they didn't think I was serious, but I was 100% serious. Uh, and that's what we've been doing. So we gave out 27 of the unmarked marquees. And then uh, we're going to be giving out probably next week 30 or 40 of the mock cars. So the biggest problem with that, with the whole transition and the electric vehicle, Uh, revolution, at least for the NYPD, it's probably, you know, the same throughout, but more for PDs because we use our vehicles 24-7. So that charge time is so critical. Uh, We don't have the uh, the luxury of having dwell time. You know, we get uh, two officers out of a car, two more officers get in a car. So uh, they're not, there's no time to charge these things up. The unfortunate thing is that we only have a limited number of fast chargers, DC fast chargers, and the ones we got are slow fast chargers. So they're only 50 kilowatt. Right. So the vehicles we got have a 98 kilowatt battery. So if you're fully depleted, this ballpark is over two hours to charge with a 50 kilowatt charger. Yep. Uh, and then almost all the cars now will never charge up 100% fast charge. They'll only do 80% fast charge and then slow down to 20% for the last 20%. So in, in totality, to charge up a, a Mach-E, if you're down to 10% battery, it's, it's two and a half hours to charge the car up. Uh, that's if we even have a DC fast charge. So as we're moving forward, I, I've been on some, some advisory boards for some new buildings, and I'm telling them I need 15 250-kilowatt charging stations. they so basically a megawatt of electricity available just to charge cars, never mind the facility. And right. they all th- Crazy. Then I need redundancy because we had we have blackouts. I need two generators, one for the building and one just to charge the vehicles. So um, and they they just thought I was over forecasting, but I think they're they're finally starting to smarten up. Now, I also had the luxury of going down to Capitol Hill like uh, we used to to do a couple of years ago this year with the the NAFA folks. And we uh, were able to sit down with 24 members of the correctional correctional staff uh, and. congressional staff and educate them a little bit about the infrastructure and charging and, and the way I like to let people kind of visualize or understand the amount of electricity we're talking about is that the average house now is 220 volts 200 amps so that's just in the ballpark of 50 kilowatts or 45 kilowatts because amperage times voltage is wattage right so <clears throat> when a car plugs in that's like you turning every switch on in your house, every air conditioner, every light bulb, every everything. So as an engineer, when we spec out an electrical panel for a house, we spec it out that you're only going to use 70% of that panel at any one given time. Now you're going to be using 100% of that panel at one time. So you need all the voltage, all the electricity. So now getting into the, the, uh, the plan that just came out, I, I call... Uh, Biden's plan one, the NEPI plan. So this is this is a, one of the plans is that if states want to get this money they they, they got to come up with a program to install charging stations throughout the state uh, on every interstate. So every 50 miles, one mile off the interstate, have a charging location, and the charging location needs to be uh, for a minimum of 450 kilowatt charging stations. So I just said 150 kilowatt is one house. So that's the equivalent of building 12 houses every 50 miles, one mile off every interstate throughout the whole country, you know, so, and have all the electricity readily available all the time. So that's the first dilemma, is the infrastructure and getting... Now, me here in NYPD, I can't even park my police cars close to our precincts, never mind have a charging location anywhere close, all right. and all the facilities are more than 50 years old. So we have a big infrastructure problem, uh, getting these cars charged up, and, uh, you know, right now... And and, and I'm also on the advisory board for General Motors and Ford Motor Company, both for their regular vehicles and their electric vehicles, and it seems the direction they're going in to try to counteract and reduce the charge time. Right now, the voltage on most of these cars are 400, 450 volts. It looks like they're going to start pumping it up to 800 volts. So if we pump the voltage up to 800 volts, we can actually reduce the charge time. But with that said, it means that this whole charging infrastructure we're installing is is already going to be antiquated. You know, so there's a, there's a lot on the infrastructure side to put in there, and then redundancy. Uh, microgrids are a must. Uh, we we you know. Uh, Twelve years ago, the whole Northeast went out with a computer glitch. We lost all the electricity for for uh, I, I believe it was a 24 hour or 48 hour period. It uh, was so reliant on electricity throughout our whole world i mean just think now if, we, if, the, if the power went out me and you would probably get disconnected and we wouldn't be talking right so so we're so reliant on electricity for everything in our lives that we need redundancy and we also need to pump up uh, which is the governor of new york is already doing if we're not making green electricity what are we really doing are we just bringing the carbon monoxide from the tailpipe to the electric plant right so So in in New York State here, 30% of the electricity is hydroelectric and 20% is uh, nuclear, which I didn't even realize myself until I started researching this. Um, And then the other 50% is still gas and oil. So uh, right now, uh, here in New York State, we're building wind turbines around Long Island and solar panels. The problem with wind and solar is the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So now we need battery storage. So with solar panels, it makes direct current, which you can store, but the wind turbines make opening current, which you can't store. So right now we need battery storage in addition to solar and wind. But where I really see the direction going, and there's more and more talk, and, and General Motors is, gonna, is really going to start. the spearhead is. They just actually started a new energy division within General Motors. And you're going to see, uh, with the medium and heavy-duty trucks and other things, is hydrogen. Hydrogen is going to be but once again, hydrogen is made from natural gas, so it's just as polluting to make hydrogen as what you get, because the byproduct of a hydrogen engine is, is water. But if we can make green hydrogen using the wind turbines and the solar, using fuel cells in reverse, uh, then then we might actually be on the right road to really accomplishing what I think we want to accomplish. But um, the uh, you know electric vehicles 85% efficient on getting the energy to the wheels. Uh, internal combustion engine vehicles maybe. Tw- percent efficient. So the, there's no doubt that the electric vehicle is the most efficient. Uh, but I, I think we're going to really see a, a big move and a big push very quickly, very shortly on the hydrogen side.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does surprise me. And you think about, you know, you're dealing with it in your sort of, I mean, on your boards on a greater scale, but in your city and in your area, but thinking about on a national scale, what it's going to really, really take um, from an infrastructure standpoint to support the number of electric vehicles, even if every fleet said, you know, I want to be 20% electric by 2030, that's still a huge undertaking. You know, just based on what you shared with us about your area and having to do that on a national level seems uh, a little daunting. I was just at um Fleet Forward Fleet Safety Conference and there was a lot of talk about kind of all these topics, and I think for fleet managers out there who are listening, you know, the, the biggest thing was, like, fleets, fleet managers talking about, how do I even get started? I mean, what do I even do? And hearing you talk about the complexities within your city, I think our audience is probably going to be be listening in and saying, gosh, yeah, this is more complex than what, um, you know, what they ever imagined. But I think the great place to start for fleet managers is to work with their Partners, you know, their fleet management companies and their OEMs, and really to start to build out that model for their unique situation, their unique fleet, and just get started. You know, figure out how to implement EVs where they fit, you know, kind of cherry pick the vehicles that are um, prime for replacement with EV, you know, where they have infrastructure or where they can build infrastructure and start there. I mean, because everybody's got to start somewhere, but. You know, it's certainly um, a complex issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, you gotta get your feet wet with it and, and see what works. But you know, just think of how dense New York City is with all our apartment buildings. Like, where where were they going to charge? Like, it just uh, you know, and now a lot of buildings don't even want electric vehicles in, in their underground parking garages because when an electric vehicle does go on fire, it's it's very difficult to put out because now it's a metal fire, and and it's the, and these these batteries now when they do go on fire. Uh, Even when the fire is out, they can start back up two hours later because the energy is still in the battery itself. uh, And recently here in the city, they they do zoning laws that all new big construction has to be electric only so you you can... you can't heat the building with gas or oil. You have to heat it with electric only. So it's just another big demand or, or a lot of people are going to be competing for electricity. And, they, and if you heard recently, they want to now the thing about banning uh, cooking with uh, natural gas, you know, to have electric stoves only throughout the whole country. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just just a lot of thought needs to go into this. And um, like I say, my biggest thing where I sit is, is redundancy and, and having having reliable power, you know, um, that if the lights do go out. We have backup plans, you know, I'm all about backups and redundancy and generators and and it's illegal to have battery storage here in the seat. Now, one really good point of an electric vehicle is if you get a bi-directional charger, you can plug the vehicle in and then energize your facility for a while, you know. So, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, so my, in my specs that I just gave to uh, my building folks, I told them I I need 15, 250 kilowatt charging stations, but they need to be bi directional. So we could plug in one or two uh, police cars and and actually keep the building running until the electric comes back on for a while.
0: Yeah, wow. It's good stuff, Bob. I I, I think we could sit here and talk for like the whole day. (laughs) We'll have to do this again sometime, but I want to respect your time. I know that you're very, very busy doing all the things um, that you talked to us about and and much, much more. But um, I just want to thank you for spending time with us. I hope that the fleet community listening enjoyed hearing Bob's stories and just a little bit about what it is to really adjust and really adapt as a fleet and safety and infrastructure sort of um, operational leader that Bob is. And I know many fleet managers listening wear a lot of hats too, Bob. And and so hopefully they um, gain some inspiration and, and thought from our conversation today. But for the fleet community, thanks for listening. And I'd love to hear your feedback on what we talked about today. So like and subscribe wherever you find content. But until next time, um, we like to say on the Straight Talk on Fleet, keep it real, keep it safe for fleet's sake. And thanks for listening. And Bob, thanks for being with us today.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.